beloved of the Lord Jesus. What is human government? What is human government? And who decides? Maybe by way of extension, what is, hot topic, what is marriage? And who decides what marriage is? Like marriage, civil government is established by God. God has established an institution. He established an institution, as we'll see, with Adam and Eve in marriage. But he also established civil government, which we'll explore this morning, but also, Lord willing, next week. Like marriage, civil government is not an evolutionary reality. By that I mean this. It's not that human government and civil government hasn't developed and changed through the years. It certainly has. Uh, also, notions of marriage have changed and so on. The things are what they are because God's made them that way, even if they're in our hands and we, we mess around with them. But I hear often enough, and I hear it from Christians of all people, uh, that, oh, well, marriage is something that, you know, we've evolved over these many, many long eons and cent- you know, centuries and millennia to the situation where a man and a woman really is the best situation. Right? It's an evolutionary discovery kind of thing. Well, that's a lie. That's not the case. God made them male and female and brought them together. God made marriage. We don't get to remake it in our image or in our likeness. And the same thing goes really with civil government. Even though I think the structure of a marriage is much clearer. uh, But nonetheless, God is the one who has instituted civil government just as he has instituted marriage. So watch out, as we begin, watch out for the tendency that we all have not just the God-haters, not just the perverts out there and everything else, but we all have a tendency, watch out for our fallen tendency to remake these things in our image, to decide that marriage is what we want it to be, and remake it that way. Or the civil government is what we think it should be. Our job as Christians is to say, well, what has God made marriage? And let us obey. Let us fall in line with what God has given us. What is civil government? What is, what is the authority of the power among people and families as we come together? How does that work? Does God lay down in his word for us? And how can we be faithful to what God has given us instead of remaking these things for us in our own images and for our own purposes? Try hard, therefore, to understand how God, how God has established these things and for what purposes. Study the scripture and discuss with Christians what is marriage, why has God made it, what purpose does it serve, particularly in redemption. For this is, God's, this is God's game here, as it were, is the redemption of the world. The creation of the world was unto the redemption of it. And civil government, just like marriage and other things, are unto the redemption of it as well. So let's try hard to figure that out. First, I want to consider the origins of civil authority, which is kind of a little piece by piece here in early Genesis to, to see it come together. And then consider the idea of dual citizenship. Got that in quotes on both of them because they're both interesting words. And then finally, God's deacons, which is to say the civil magistrate who is to reward the good and to punish the wicked and that does not bear the sword in vain. He is God's deacon. He is God's minister. He is God's servant. So first, the origins of authority. In the beginning, God made Adam. We have six days of work, and finally Adam is there on the sixth day. And in Adam, we have God commanding him. We can look back and see. I'm not going to take time. And I hope that you're pretty familiar with Genesis 1, 2, and 3 being chapters that you should have read 100, 200, 300 times by now. Um, 
even though we all miss details all the time, to be sure, but being familiar with them. Well, God made Adam and gave him a command. And that indicates that God made Adam in his image. Remember, that's, that's different. Adam's made differently than everything else God made. God made everything good. It was all very good. But he made Adam in his own image. Adam's the image bearer of God, and he commands Adam. Right? He creates Adam in his image, and he commands Adam. And that command is, you can eat of all the trees here, but don't eat of this one in the midst of the garden. Right? Or, or the day you eat of it, you'll surely die. That would imply, and I think it's important, that there is a self-government. Now, there, now the, the first thing is, maybe the first step altogether, is the, the absolute, the unchallenged authority of God. He is the creator of all. He owns it all. It's all his. He just, he's created it and he disposes of it according to his will. So that's like number one. Okay, the first thing, God is the authority. Okay, God has created us. God's created all things. It's all his. He's the authority. That's number one. He created Adam in his own image and commanded him and blessed him and put him in his spot. And that implies, I think, an idea of self-government. God has, has equipped Adam in such a way that he can govern himself. There's a certain amount of authority he has over himself to make decisions, to serve the Lord, not to serve the Lord, as it turns out. But there's a, not, not an autonomy, for the word autonomy means self-law. Nomos means law. But rather, some kind of autocracy, in a limited sense. Crassy will be, be... Anyway, we can spend a lot of time this morning talking about the word crassy, C-R-A-C-Y, that goes on the end of all these words, which just means rule. Right? So autocracy is the rule of oneself. God's given a limited measure of autocracy, self-rule, self-management to Adam under his own sovereignty. And then, of course, Eve comes after that, right? Adam, God makes Adam and gives him the task of, of, of the garden. So there's the responsibilities and things built in there to Adam and this responsibility and authority that he has. But he's not fit for it by himself. Right? Not just to tend and keep the garden, but to multiply and fill the earth and subdue it that God commands him. So God gives Adam Eve. And Adam's pretty excited about that, right? Adam's fired up about Eve, and it's just in that respect, then we have not just Adam and kind of self-government, but we have the situation of two people together, right? We have Adam, and we have Eve. And the scripture tells us in First Timothy that, well, Eve came after Adam, and so is subservient to Adam in that sense, it was, it was brought under him, uh, but also that Eve was deceived by the serpent, and Adam wasn't. Uh, and, and Paul has things to say about that in the New Covenant as far as women in ministry and, uh, and teaching and authority in the church and things like this. So there's some application that direction. Just pull it all back to this right now, though, that there's a situation where there's a man and his wife. Is there going to be some kind of, like, struggle in power around that? Is there going to be a problem there? And the answer is, well, before the fall, maybe not. Maybe, maybe Adam knew his, his role as head. And he knew his wife's role as helper, and they, she knew her role as helper, and her husband's role as head, and they just moved, motored right along for however long they were able to do that. But it didn't stay that way. Right? Eve was deceived, and Adam ate of the fruit. Humanity fell, and problems ensued. So the, the point before we look at the problems is that there is some kind of still authority structure and power structure among people, even from self-government to uh, the marriage institution, which, of course, persists after the fall as well. Marriage is not destroyed by the fall. In fact, we find that marriage is redeemed, right? And marriage is even the, the means of redemption or an image of redemption. Uh, but we have these authority structures that persist on through the fall. Flip a chapter back to Genesis chapter 3, and let's look at the, the curses quickly. Particularly the curse of the woman, verse 16. 
end of end of Adam. Verse 16, to the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, in pain you shall bring forth children. Okay, so we have, remember, now, Eve is created for Adam, who's created for the task. God created Adam to tend and keep and have dominion. He created Eve to help Adam do that. And her job is then, from the beginning, is for childbearing. She's to help him uh, multiply and, and train up these children to take dominion of the earth. That's from the beginning what's going on. And the curse hits her right where... She's supposed to be working. You see that? The curse is right in the middle of what she's supposed to be doing. Bearing her children, raising them up with her husband, and submitting to her husband, which is the next step here. In verse 16. I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. Your pain you shall bring for children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So we see there's a curse right at the beginning here upon Eve that it's going to be hard to have a husband. That's not going to be an easy thing for Eve. In fact, that's what she's created to do. Right? She's created to be the help me for Adam, and she's going to find it a difficult thing. And the same preposition is used here, as we just read in chapter 4, where God tells Cain that sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for him. Is that a good thing? Oh, sin desires Cain. Isn't that nice? No, it's not nice. It's a terrible thing, and it's the same preposition, same idea here. There's something, there's something in the fall and here in the curse of God upon woman that makes it hard for her to be a wife. Just like it's going to be a curse on Adam, making it hard for him to do his job in being a husband and taking dominion. Just noting here that, that we have these power structures, these structures of authority, but that they're going to be hard. They're going to have difficulties uh, from this point on, right? That the fall affects us at our deepest levels where God has created us to be taking dominion and being helpers, right? This, this most fundamental building block of all society. Now, eventually we're going to get out the civil government out there somewhere, right? Uh, but right now we're just talking about husband and wife, right? This fundamental, after self, you know, this, uh, self-rule and under God, husband and wife, the marriage is, is really the fundamental building block of everything, right? It's out of this marriage that the children will come and be discipled. And hence the church, right? It's the people of God. But also the state will come out of these discipled and trained children as well. So the marriage is the centerpiece of all of that. Marriage is the centerpiece of the family, which is the building block of everything else. And we have political, we could say, political struggles, even right here, River City, between husband and wife. It's going to be a struggle, even by God's curse and his design here. The family authority continues here. You can see in verse 1 of chapter 4 where we started reading. Adam knew his wife Eve, so marriage continues and procreation continues after the fall. And she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of Yahweh, also Abel. So we have this, before God, under his absolute sovereignty, his absolute authority, we have delegated authority to Adam as a man, as a a living being, and made in God's image, commanded by God, controlled by God. We also have the authority and the structure of bringing a wife into that situation. The husband and wife kind of authority situation. But we also have the the children. The children are brought into this as well. And they are going to be, as we shall see in various other commands to the scripture, children are to be subservient to, obedient to their parents. Now, Eve is supposed to obey her husband. The children are supposed to obey their parents. And we'll see as we move out that subjects or citizens are supposed to obey the government God has put over them as well. We're all under all sorts of tiers of authority and government. God calls us to be faithful to him in all of them. 
to be subject to him and to the authorities that he's put into our lives that run from self-government under God to marriage to family, all right here in the first four chapters of Genesis. Now we run right into the problem, you know, call it a political problem, call it a social problem, call it fratricide, call it what you want, where Cain is, despises his brother and murders his brother. I've often thought of the heartbreak of Adam and Eve, of just this very thing. That, yeah, they got loosey-goosey in the garden there, didn't they? Whoops. That's what happens because of sin. See, it's not just the eating of the fruit. It's not just their eyes are open. It's not just that they're ashamed before God, all those things, but that they're ru- their world's ruined. Their children are killing each other out of hatred. You see, this is what sin does. This is what God's, this is what God's combating in the gospel, is not only our, our relationship with him to be reconciled, but our relationship one with another. And that's a political reality. That's a social reality. Okay? Not just within families, not just be, between husband and wife or with children, but as you get families together, which is exactly what's going on here in, in Genesis 4 and 5, you have the growth of families and, and the development of families that finally land up in cities and in cities, and what do you do in a city? You have to have government between people. You have to have some kind of way to uh, protect people and redress grievances and the like. We have a quote from Gary DeMar here that I did not have time to type in. By the way, a very useful little set of books is God and Government by Gary DeMar. If you don't have it, I'm sure you can find it for very cheap. Excellent and worth your time. Worth your time for teaching kids. It's got, it's, the way it's set up is, is very useful and helpful. He talks about the multiplication of people on earth and the multiplication of sin and therefore the need of increasing civil restraint, law, uh, civil magistrate, and so on to deal with that. The multiplication of peoples necessitates some form of civil government to keep law and order. This is a simple note. Not that government is a post-fall reality. It's not. The authority and the structures of authority precede the fall. But they change because of the fall and get worse and more necessary, especially as far as civil restraint goes after the fall. Because of the multiplication of peoples, there is a multiplication of the natural results of sin. The sinless society of the pre-fall world gave way to murder, lust, theft, and war as a result of man's depraved nature. That's the rest of chapter 4 that we didn't quite read. The necessity of external restraint is made evident because of the violent nature of those who desired to take wives for themselves, those taking wives did so without any regard for law or moral order. They took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. When self-government is repudiated, it is the responsibility of the civil government to restrain evil. Get that? When self-government, that is when a, when a man, a woman, a child, before God refuses to order their lives toward God and faithfulness to him, then it becomes some other authority that's going to step in and rectify that. And that's what civil government is for. To punish the wicked. To restrain wickedness. And we see that here right from the the beginning. I'll finish the sentence. When self-government is repudiated, it is the responsibility of civil government to restrain evil. Because of the complete disregard for self and family government, God determined to uh, exterminate the godless society, hence the flood. And by God's grace, only eight people survived that flood. So here we have, and again, the picture isn't rosy, right? This early biblical picture of humanity isn't rosy a bit. It's like, hey, it starts great, and then, man, it goes south, and then it goes south fast, and to the point where every imagination of the human heart is only evil continually, and God is repenting that he made this thing at all. 
least that's how it was represented there, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So if we try to take all that and say, okay, what do we have here from the beginning of Genesis that helps us begin to understand? That helps us begin to understand what civil government is in God's work. This is all God's decree. We read in Romans 13 that all authority is from God. He's the one who set it up. If you rebel against his authority, you're rebelling against God who set it up, and you're susceptible to wrath. Okay, so because God has the one who's, who's organized and set up these authorities. From self-government to marriage to family, to more broad social concerns, God has instituted this authority, these authorities in our lives, and he is the one who preserves this human government. All of this is human government, from self-government to marriage to family, uh, and then more broad concerns of society. So the origins of civil authority are in God. He has made them, he has preserved them, he's revealed to them to us in his word, and again, Christian, our job is to receive that and fall in line. We're to figure out what God has said civil government is in its different capacities and different levels and fall in line with what God has said to do. Which brings us to our second point, dual citizenship. Dual citizenship. We'll start with citizenship, because dual just means two. We've got to figure out two or what. So, citizenship. What is it to be a citizen? Citizenship it occurs to me anyway, is a social and political reality that involves both responsibilities and privileges. Citizenship is a social and political reality that involves both responsibilities and privileges. Whether we want to call ourselves here, here and say just in our own context, we're, we're all, most of us anyway probably, Americans, we're citizens of the United States of America, we have a citizenship here. We have, we have a legal and political respond, you know, relationship with each other, also with, with the state and the authority, that has various responsibilities on our side to each other and to the state, but also on the state side, the government side, to its people. Right? There's responsibilities on both sides and privileges on both sides as well. The citizenship has to be put in quotation marks only because people, Christians, haven't always thought of themselves as citizens of authority structures uh, or states in this world. Sometimes they're subjects. You subject yourself to the king. Right? That's, that's the idea. You're, you're a subject. You're not a citizen. You're a subject. Or possibly the word comrade. Right? There's a different meaning there. Even the word citizen, if you're going back to the French Revolution, has a similar sort of meaning as comrade, which should make all of you like, you know, shudder and like get the willies, uh, you know, this sort of thing. But yeah, there are different ways we understand that there's, there's authority structure above us, and our relationship to it, according to the scripture, is one of subjection whether we call ourselves subject or call ourselves citizens or call ourselves comrades or however it goes, and all that has to be conformed to obedience to Christ. And a Christian will have to find out how to be a Christian in communist China. A Christian will have to be a Christian and figure out how to do it in our democratic republic here in the United States of America or under a monarchy or under a dictator, and you name it, right? Christians have to figure out how to be Christians in all of those situations. And it's not the same in every situation how that subjection is going to, going to look. The, res- the responsibilities and privileges we can think of, I guess, in, in, in family terms. So not, not everyone is in your family. right? You have a family, say you're a husband and a wife, and uh, not everyone's your wife. There's a special relationship between a husband and a wife um, that is distinctive, and it's exclusive. 
And the same thing goes with all of these, right? Not everyone's a citizen, not everyone's in your family. Not, so if we, if we think of these kind of layers of authority, we have to recognize that they're exclusive in their own particular way. But we have certain privileges and responsibilities as husbands and wives in that relationship as husband and wife. We have privileges with each other that no one else has. And that's intimacy, that's sexuality, that's living life together, that's being together in ways that are different from all other relationships. And that's something that's kind of important to us nowadays as marriage is um, being redefined all around us and under us. Is that, oh, well, it's just two people that love each other and care about each other and want to be together. So, well, it's, that's just heartwarming, but it's not marriage. Okay, that's not what a marriage is. Marriage should include those things, people that love each other and want to be together, but it's also a covenant relationship. It's something that we covenant before God and publicly before people. And every society, I think, has noted that there's something different about this relationship. You know why? Because it generates stability and children and wealth. It's, it's, it's part of the, it's the building blocks of, of any society is the, is the marriage and the family. And that's been recognized from time out of mind, uh, though it doesn't seem to be noticed now very much. Uh, but we should certainly notice that. Anyway, back to the idea that your marriage is a special relationship. You have privileges and responsibilities in that marriage uh, that no one else has to you. The same thing goes with your family. If you're a child in a family, you have a special relationship with your parents and with your siblings that no one else has. Now, other people have similar type relationships with their parents and their siblings, but no one has the one you have. And there are certain responsibilities and, and, and privileges that are built into that relationship as well. How about at the church? Is everyone a member of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? Certainly not. We have to know who is on the roster. As a pastor, I need to know who I'm responsible for to herald the word of God and to counsel and to be a part of your life because I need to know who the members are. I, I certainly, as a minister, have responsibilities to the world, but my primary responsibilities are right here. We have rights and privileges together. We have responsibilities and privileges together as a church. And in all these are levels of authority that go on as well and rule. What about the more broadly social aspects? How about your neighbors? Not, I mean, in a certain sense, everyone's your neighbor. That's what Jesus says. Go and be neighborly. He's saying everyone around you, you're going to go be neighborly too. But you have certain responsibilities. Say, your next door neighbor. You watch after their dog. There's, you know, there's this relationship you have with your neighbors in particular where you share responsibilities and privileges. How about if we move a little bit out to the city? We live in the city. Maybe you don't. Maybe you're out in the country far enough or you're part of But you have, you have responsibilities in Warren or St. Helens or Scott Booth to say, hey, listen, I'm a part of the city. We just had elections. And uh, one of the responsibilities and privileges um, of being a part of the city and part of the county and a part of the state and part of the federal reality is that we can vote. We can, we can suffer people to rule over us and to, uh, to do things for us. And we can, we can vote on d- different things that people are proposing for laws and things like that. Now, the idea that an alien, as someone who's not, um, not a citizen of the city of St. Helens or of the uh, Columbia County or of Oregon State, should come in and tell us what our laws should be, is offensive to us. So, no, no, no. This is our thing, right? This is the privilege that we have under the authority of the state or under the authority of the county or under the authority of the city to vote and to participate in the government, right? So I'm, I'm kind of working this all through to say there's all these different levels of authority that have responsibilities and privileges, and they're all over the place for us. And they run from city to county, again, Oregon State, all the way up to nation, and I think beyond. We don't like to talk about one world you know, government, though 
as Christians we should, because we do have a one-world government, Jesus the Christ of God. Okay? That's the one-world government. It's not uh, by man's hands. It's by God, through the God-man. But anyway, we're all, we're all part of this world together. We're all sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, right? So we are connected that way. Uh, and that's an important thing for us to recognize politically as we go all the way, all the way out. Now, the idea here with the dual citizenship is that, first of all, we're citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Right, or subjects of the kingdom of heaven. We'll get to that in a second. But while we're, then that's the, that's not, not just the primary. It's like, it's not that that's number one, and then there's two, three, four, five. It's that that's the whole ball of wax, and in the ball of wax are different parts. That makes sense? It's not number one, and then there are other things. It is everything. It is the list. And there are things on the list, like being a good Oregonian, and being a good husband, and things like that. All fall under being a faithful citizen of heaven in Christ Jesus. So that's your, our first citizenship is in heaven in Christ Jesus. We'll look at that in a second. The dual citizenship, the dual part means there's another one, but it's another one that's multifaceted. Right? It's not just like we're citizens of heaven and we're citizens of the United States, and that's it, we're dual citizens. Yeah, yeah, but you're also a citizen of the state of Oregon. You're also part of the county of Columbia. You're also part of the city of Warren and so on. You're also part of the family that you're in. And all of these levels of authority are all built into this thing. So the dual citizenship says we're citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And then also our earthly responsibilities, our worldly responsibilities, where God has put us, where we, uh, we have to serve him faithfully. So all that to say, the dual, citizens, dual citizenship means that Christ is over all. We're subject to him, and then everything falls out under that. That's the dual part. So let me read for you a couple of passages. This one from Ephesians chapter 2. For through him, Jesus, we, we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. Okay, we're talking about Gentiles who were strangers and aliens to what? To God's redemptive people. To the redemption of God, right? Israel is the, the, the target in the Old Covenant through those years, and we were, Gentiles weren't a part of that. We weren't a part of Israel. That's what he's saying. But, we get right back to it here. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And so Paul's discussing this new covenant phase of, of, of the people of God that includes now all the Gentiles are being brought in, like kind of like we were talking about this morning. And, and they're being brought into what? Into citizenship. They're being brought into the number, they're, they're members of the household of God, or family members, and you get the doctrine of adoption that comes into that, where we're not just strays out there, but God has brought us in through Christ Jesus into his family, making us family members, but also citizens of his kingdom, subjects of the king. So one thing there, and I want you to hear this, this is important for you to hear. In our redemption in Christ Jesus, here's God saying to you, you belong to me with my people. You belong here. Sometimes we have these feelings like, I don't know, especially when I think when we were younger, maybe when we were older too, I don't know. I don't belong. I don't know where people are. I feel, I feel out of place and out of sorts. God is saying to you in Christ Jesus, in his death and resurrection, you belong. You are his. He's called you by name. You're his. And you belong to his people. You have a citizenship in heaven. And you are members of the household of God. In Philippians 3, he puts it this way. 
But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, that is heaven, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's this great hope. Listen to it. Who will transform our lowly body to become like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Wow. There we go. The Almighty Christ will conform us, even even to our very bodies, will give us the resurrection and draw us into that full fellowship. We have that as a hope, Christian. That's our hope as citizens of heaven from which we await a Savior. Heavenly citizenship, its set up in its responsibilities and privileges, is over all things. It doesn't destroy, but enhances our worldly commitments. Listen to that. Being a citizen of heaven, our first citizenship and our dual citizenship, our first citizenship's in heaven, and it doesn't destroy the other citizenship. It doesn't make us say, I'm never an American, I'm only a Christian. I'm never an Oregonian, I'm never a Christian. I'm never a Prussic, I'm only a Christian. That would be a misunderstanding of the gospel. Read 1 Corinthians 7. Paul talks about that. He says, we don't do that. We don't talk that way. You're, you know, we talked about that a little bit last week. You, being in Christ, being a citizen of heaven, actually enhances what God does here on earth in His redemptive work through us, through His church, as we receive the kingdom. Heavenly citizenship, heavenly citizenship is overall. It is the list. Our commitment to Christ is our commitment. And our commitments then fall in there. And it does not destroy those commitments, but rather enhances those worldly commitments. Now, every, this is now, now on to the deacons. You might flip over to Romans, now that we're there. Romans chapter 13. Now, we all, as Christians, have worldly commitments. Commitments of this world. And we we're talking about all sorts of those just now, from marriage to family to you know, broader social concerns and all that. We all have, all have those. But Paul specifies one here in chapter 13, one particular kind of calling that's important for us to pay attention to. Every lawful calling is service to God. Every lawful calling is service to God. Right? That's, that's the doctrine. You're, whatever you're doing, is you know, what God calls you to do, your work, your daily labors, that's all service to God. Okay? You're a servant to God that way. But here's a particular kind of service to God. There, the service is rendered by law enforcement, by the judicial system, by the governor, uh, of, you know, the, the magistrate, and so on, that they render unto God specifically. We'll get verses, well, specifically verses 3 and 4. I'll start at the beginning of the chapter. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that, that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For the rulers, here we go, for the rulers are not a terror to good, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant, his deacon, the word is deacon there. He is God's servant for your good. But if you, are, if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So we have a twofold reality here of, this, of the magistrate or the, the public servant here, who's the governor, the one who has civil authority, and what they are required to do before God. They are to encourage good, and they are to punish evil. Okay, that's, that's kind of two sides of it. I want to look just quickly this morning at the first one, 
and then Lord willing next week at the second one, uh, particularly capital punishment, which is implied by he does not bear the sword in vain. The sword is for taking off heads. Right? So we're talking about capital punishment there, not something else, not getting poked in the arm. It's what hurts or something like that. But anyway, that's for next week, Lord willing. This, this week, right now, shortly, just the good. So this, this kind of encouragement toward good that the civil magistrate is called by God to, uh, to be involved in, to, to have that be his business. Civil leaders are God's ministers. And uh, for our good, we get that then in verse 4, not just for good generally, for our good, right? For the good of, of God's people. Because these are God's ministers. This is all God's design and His plan, and it all falls into His redemptive work and His redemptive plan in Christ Jesus. And we need to, we need to see that. We need to recognize that even in rulers that aren't just honky-dory, just not doing everything we think they should do, and even in rulers that are wicked, what God is doing there and how He uses that even to build His kingdom on earth. God's created and preserved civil government for our good. God's created civil government. He's created the authority structures among men. And he's preserved them all the way down to right now for our good. And they encourage us to do good. Well, how would they do that? How do the civil magistrates, how do the civil governors and uh, the government uh, you know, be among humans, how do they encourage us to do good? Well, there are a number of ways I think that could be, could be understood. All the way from, I think, recognizing Christianity and saying this is good, truth is good, falsehood is bad, and things like this. But Paul doesn't really get into that. He's kind of more in terms of conduct, right? what people do. And then the government's job isn't to decide theological matters or decide the, the issues uh, of the church. There's authority in the church to do those sorts of things. And maybe the government should support that. But it shouldn't take it among itself, upon itself to do that. But it should respond to the deeds of men, what they do. And if they do wickedly, they should be punished. And if they do well, then they should be encouraged or rewarded or something along those lines, as it says here. Well, the first way, I guess, in a very simple, basic way, that the civil government God gives us and God preserves in our midst uh, is a good to us is for personal protection, a protection of our lives and our goods. Uh, God's given authority and given power for protection, that we would have a place where we are not under attack but are protected. Uh, even by force of arms, hence the sword. But not just protection. How about stability? How about how about a situation where there's we, we can have some sense of what's going to happen tomorrow or the next day based upon what's going on because there's a, a stability in the society based upon the civil order held together by the civil magistrate. How about maintaining our rights and privileges as citizens? So not only protecting us, not only giving us stability to do our work, but maintaining our rights and privileges. Are those good things? Christian, they're so good you don't even know what they taste like. You're so busy eating them all the time, you don't know what they taste like. You're swimming around in these privileges and don't notice. Okay? So take that into, into consideration. Who cares about that? I want them to give me money or something like that. You might think, that's, that's the good I want. Give me a paycheck. That's not what the civil government is to do exactly. It's to provide these things, provide protection, to provide stability, and to provide um, the maintenance of rights and privileges. Thus we pray, as Christians listen, pray and preach and live in this world, but with our heavenly citizenship over all. Turn to First Timothy chapter 2. Flip right over here. We'll 
we'll close promptly after this. First Timothy 2. I think this will help us understand what Paul's saying here as we run up into this text. So often this text, especially the last little part of it, is taken as an anti-Calvinistic, anti-Presbyterian text because God desires all to be saved without any sense of what the all means there. But listen to what the deal is here. Listen to what Paul's telling the Christians to do right at the beginning. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. Okay, so the, the Christians are to be praying for all people, particularly those who have the rule. Right? Those are the ones to whom we're supposed to be subjected, from Romans, Romans chapter 13 and, and 1 Peter 2 and so on. So we've got supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead, peaceable, we may lead a peaceable and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Okay, so the leadership were praying for they would live certain kinds of lives and they would govern certain kinds of ways. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Well, that's the, that's the mission of the church. That we should preach Christ and we should preach God, the one God between God and men, the Savior, Christ Jesus. That men should be saved, all sorts of men, is the idea there, of course. All sorts of men. And that's through praying for our leaders that they would live quietly, peaceably, and godly, so that there can be the stability and work where the church can get the work done of preaching and praying, evangelizing, and discipling. Now, is that a benefit? Is that a good thing for us, that, the, that God gives us through the civil government? It's a tremendous gift for us. Again, one that we just simply take for granted, though we enjoy it day by day, even in the topsy-turvy goofiness of our political situation now, which is topsy-turvy and goofy, but that's not unusual. Politics goes that way. But recognize how much different a chaotic reality would be for spreading the gospel, for, for conducting the church, for discipling the, the people of God in the midst of chaos rather than in the midst of order and stability that God gives through the civil government. These civil servants are indeed God's deacons. They're his servants. They serve him. Now, you might think, well, some of them certainly don't seem to think so and have no idea that they'd be serving God. Okay, that's fine. It doesn't say that they know what's going on. God's the one who knows what's going on, and he's the one telling us what's going on. Now, we should know what's going on and not be confused, because God has spoken. These are his deacons. These are his servants, and therefore are good. These civil powers are instituted and preserved by God for our good. For the good of the church, for the good of the people of God, for the good of the reign of Jesus Christ, and the proclamation of his gospel on the earth. So just like marriage, Christian, just like marriage, human government is what God says it is. Human government is what God says it is. And I'm not saying, just as a little side note here at the end, that Romans 13 says what government is, period, that's all it is. I don't think that's the case, and we'll come back to it next week, where I think there's a general reality that Paul's pointing out, the general redemptive purposes of God. But we all know government goes sideways. We all know government gets crazy. We all know men, when they get authority and power in their hands, lose it. They somehow think they become, they think they're gods. They think they're God himself. Okay, well, that's a problem, and there there are definitely issues with that, and we have to consider those as Christians. 
And that's part of the submission reality that we're looking at here in chapter 13. In what ways we are to submit to government that is doing what God says it's supposed to do. And how do we submit to government when it's not doing what God says it's supposed to do as well. So more on that later as far as the teaser. But, back to this. Human government is what God says it is. Just like marriage is what God says it is. We don't get to just make it up. We get to receive from God what he has instituted and what he has revealed in his word. And then we get to understand it and live it together as Christians. God made human government. He instituted it and he preserves it. Worldly authority is his idea. It's his idea. It's it's, it's his idea that Adam was head over Eve. It's his idea that Adam and Eve were parents over their children. It's his idea that the cities were made and institutions of government came into place and have been preserved down even to our own time. And it's his reality that we are dual citizens. We're citizens of heaven in Christ Jesus because of his death, his resurrection, his enthronement, which is where he is now. This is where Paul says we wait from heaven for our redemption, for Christ to return. Oh, Christian, think of that day when we won't have to struggle with submitting the government. We won't have to struggle with this, whether a godly or even an ungodly desire of how we deal with authorities in our lives and submitting rightly to them will be transformed into the image of Christ, and we will know exactly how to submit, how to live, how to glorify God in our bodies, with our minds, and everything else. And that day when Christ returns, we look forward to that. He's made us dual citizens, and that citizenship in heaven runs everything down here. We're citizens of heaven entirely. We might be a citizen of Morgan. We might be a citizen of Jamaica. We might be a citizen of whatever else. All those things might be, but we are Christian, a citizen of heaven through Christ Jesus and the civil powers here are servants of God. They're deacons of God discharging his duties. His, his, uh, and that's, that's from being good to us, but also to punishing evil in our midst as well. So, Christian, the civil government to which we are supposed to and we are called to submit is definitely a good thing for us. It's a good gift God's given to us, even if it gets squirrely and twisted in men's hands. Even if we get squirrely twisted in our own hearts, which it does sometimes, it's a good thing God has given to us. The structure, the order, the stability, the justice, and the rewards of the civil government are all God's. For the civil magistrate is God's deacon. Amen. Our Father and our God, there are many things here to, for us to consider and wrestle with. God, give us hearts to submit to you. That we be ready to hear from you in your word. and Not to argue. Not to... Say, yeah, but what, what if, and all the things that come to mind for us, but that we would, uh, even like we teach our children, say, yes, Papa. Yes, Papa. Whatever you say is what we will do. So, Father, give us the grace to receive from you your word and to be obedient and to work on it together, to, to study it out together, to work it out together in our lives as we submit to all these various authorities and, and figure out how to honor you in obeying the authorities that you put into our lives, knowing that our citizenship is in heaven, that we belong to you through Christ Jesus. And that is the whole ball of wax. So, Father, we thank you for taking care of the whole ball of wax. And, and we, we thank you for leaving to us some details to work out and figure out that uh, our salvation is in your hands. For you have chosen us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before you in love. We pray in Jesus' name. And amen.